0: Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk.
1: And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin.
0: Thank you for joining us this week as we enter our second creature feature for our monster bracket. This week, we will be discussing 2001's The Mummy Returns, as well as 1994's Interview with the Vampire.
1: This is our first
0: proper sequel in a bracket. Yeah. So, typically, even if a sequel is seated higher than the previous film we'll go ahead and either use the seating of the prequel film if it's still high enough or just slot in the first film but with the sequel for the mummy there's not a whole lot that you lose from just watching the mummy
1: returns apart from having not seen the mummy which i mean you know
0: yes but as as far as like being able to follow the plot being able to understand the characters it's not
1: Terribly relevant. And as should be very obvious, these correspond to the universal monsters of the mummy and the vampire, or Dracula, really.
0: Another reason that we decided to go with the mummy returns as opposed to the original mummy, you can see the DNA of the original Boris Karloff's The Mummy in the first mummy film from the 90s, whereas the mummy returns is definitely more so doing its own thing. Mm -hmm. You have Dwayne the Rock Johnson playing a
1: scorpion centaur thing yeah I don't even know what you call that (laughs) apart from I really really hope a Fast and the Furious prequel are you
0: asking for Fast and the Furious but it's chariots because this is how you get Fast and the Furious but it's chariots
1: wow I was just making an offhand joke but I mean (laughs) wow okay yes I am (laughs) But I still want VCRs to be involved somehow. Oh, uh, of course you do. Anyway, we're getting off the racetrack of these chariots. It's a segue. Let's talk about the Mummy Returns. How's that go? Nine years after Rick, Evie, Jonathan, and
0: Ardeth defeated the cursed mummy of Imhotep, the ancient past of Egypt is once again stirring. Evie is having strange dreams that seem too real and are leading her towards the bracelet of the Scorpion King. Evie and Rick's son, Alex, unfortunately dons the bracelet showing him the way to Amsher, a mythical oasis said to be the refuge of the Scorpion King, cursed leader of the army of Anubis. But it will also kill him if he does not reach the pyramid of the oasis in seven days. Complicating matters further, a cult has resurrected Imhotep a second time, with the help of a reincarnated Anaxunamun, and is also seeking Amshir. But they seek to defeat the Scorpion King and wield the army of Anubis for themselves. The cult kidnaps Alice, and the Okanos follow after, with Alex leaving clues as to the caravan's next stops. Eventually, both groups make it to Amsher, and Alex is reunited with his family, only for his mother to be murdered by Anaxunamun. Rick won't let her die in vain and enters the temple to defeat both Imhotep and the Scorpion King. Meanwhile, Alex and Jonathan realize they can steal the Book of the Dead from Onyxunamun and, and bring Evie back. Which they do. Rick and Imhotep fight against the Scorpion King, with Imhotep feigning loyalty to the cursed creature. Eventually, Rick is able to defeat the Scorpion King and send his army back to hell. The temple then begins to collapse and Rick and Imhotep cling to the edge of an abyss. Evie risks her life to save Rick but Onyx and a Moon does not do the same for her lover. Imhotep accepts his fate and falls to hell. The O'Connells escape, and Jonathan snags a giant diamond for his trouble.
1: That was a really well done summary. The way you describe it was fun and engaging. It would make me want to watch it. So yeah. <laughs> Thank you. This picks up, like you said, nine years after the first movie, but you don't need to have seen it to kind of have a sense of what's going on. They do a decent enough job of giving you a sense of who these characters are and what they're about.
0: Yeah, and in fact, Evie has changed quite a bit bit from the original film. She's a bit more of an action hero. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that definitely makes sense with her moving from a librarian in the first film to being involved in this relationship with adventurer Rick, and she wants to raid all these Egyptian tombs. Considering the things that live in said tombs in this universe, it makes sense that she would probably pick up some combat experience.
1: Mm-hmm. You get the sense that they've been kind of at this basically constantly since... The last movie came out, and I guess they stopped to have a kid, but probably not for that long. Certain that child was born in a pyramid or something. And while you don't get specifics of what they've encountered, you get the sense that they've had a number of adventures that would probably make for a really fun like mid-cool comic or whatever. Mm -hmm.
0: The film also does a really good job of just giving you a sense of who these characters are without even any dialogue. You can see it just in what their actions are showing you. A perfect example of this is early on in the film, Evie and Rick are moving through a tomb and there's scorpions all over the floor. And Evie is very deftly stepping and dodging around them to avoid stepping on them. And Rick just doesn't care. He's stomping all over the place because they're just scorpions.
1: Which is good. He's going to be very fed up with scorpions by the end of this movie. mm mm-hmm. Yeah, we have the really great duo of Rachel Weiss and Brendan Fraser, who are good actors in their own right, and they have really great chemistry with each other. They're phenomenal. I would really
0: love to see them as a pair in something else again.
1: Mm-hmm. Like a procedural drama, or maybe they're playing Zeus and Hera or something. I don't know. Take your pick. Mm-hmm. And then rounding out the cast, we've got John Hannah as Jonathan, Evie's deeply useless brother. Sorry, we must be in the wrong house. I thought you said this was your house. No, I didn't. He gets a little bit flanderized,
0: this film, in comparison to the first, but the comedy that he brings is so wonderful that I don't care.
1: Yeah. I mean, everyone's a little bit flanderized here, but it's still a fun time. Yeah. And then we've got uh, Oded Fair as the Bay, a prominent member of this ancient secret group of warriors who keeps mummies from rising ineffectively. I mean... Well, okay, they they did did a good job for like 5,000 years. Okay, yeah. That's pretty good track record. And while I love uh, Odin Fair, I I feel like he doesn't get enough to do in this movie. He's there and he's enjoying every bit of it, but I would love to have let him have a little bit more room to breathe.
0: They also, like, weirdly create this whole separate B-plot for him where he has to go fight the army of Anubis as it's rising while everyone else is at Amshir fighting the Scorpion King, and it kind of feels unnecessary to the whole plot, and it was just, we want to really have a lot of action sequences with Oded Fair slicing people with a sword.
1: Which, I'm not going to complain too much about that. Like, there are some really cool sequences. Also, throwing it out, this gives us, in 2001, a story about a a group of Muslims who were kind of the the big heroic army in this narrative, which is actually really cool. We wouldn't really get much like that until, I guess, Infinity War with, you know, all those disposable people from Rwanda. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, they're winning against the Army of Anubis. I mean, Anubis has to, like, bring back more reinforcements because they beat the first wave. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we got uh, Freddie Bowick as Alex, who doesn't seem like he's done a lot, really. He's pretty decent here as a child actor.
0: He is able to carry the scenes that he's in. There's this really interesting antagonism between Alex and Lockna, played by Adewale Akanoe Egbaje. And while it does boost Alex for the film and make him more interesting of a character, it unfortunately weakens Lockna as he is... Having this battle of wits with this eight-year-old. Whoa, that was amazing! Perfect time.
1: What are you talking about? I missed. They're kind of doing shitty Home Alone on a train in Egypt. Kind of, yeah. And really, Lachna wants nothing more than to just murder the kid and be done with him. Mm-hmm. I think if I had to like, make one change for the film, it would be for them to have either a rivals-to-friends dynamic or for that character to be faded into the background and do some sort of Captain Hook and the Darling's Kids from Hook dynamic. I think that's going to be more interesting and might have given yeah. us more for them to do. Yeah. As it is, Lochna and the museum creator, who's kind of his, uh, I guess... He's the Benny analog for this film. The Benny analog, yeah. Are just kind of there filling out
0: the plot but not really getting meat. There's also this dangling plot thread of Lochna and Ardeth Bay have some sort of history, but they don't really get into what that is, and there's not a really good resolution to that. Ardeth kills him, but it's it just feels kind of hollow. Former lovers. Sure. I mean, there, there's nothing to say that's
1: not the case. Listen, this is one of those movies that reminds me that I'm a bisexual. <laughs> <laughs> and I, this time I was watching it, because I've seen this, you know, many, many times, just assuming that everyone at some point in this narrative had dated everybody else in the narrative, and it- Makes the film a richer experience. And speaking of former lovers, uh, we meet Izzy, an old friend of Rick's who has a dirigible. She's faster than she looks. Oh, Izzy. I
0: do appreciate that the sequel has found some prominent roles for people of color. It is unfortunate that they are... Like, we've already talked about the problems with Lachna, and Izzy is kind of playing second fiddle to Jonathan...
1: Yeah, they form a sort of comedy duo thing, but Jonathan, you know, has a more established character, so they kind of give him more to do.
0: Yeah, and unless they're in the Dirigible, Izzy is nowhere to be seen.
1: He has that unfortunate thing where somebody had to make the pilot character, and that means that all their stat points went into pilot skills. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's still funny. He has lots of great bits, and you get the sense that... He has had just as rich and and varied as life as Rick and Evie have. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, that's one thing I really do want to praise this film for, is it? it makes the world feel lived in. All of these characters have very rich histories, and while we're not getting to them in this film, it's definitely hinted at that they exist, and there are other stories to explore.
1: So in the first film, we just had the mummy and all the stuff related to him as kind of the only magical thing in this world that we were aware of other stuff was maybe implied or suggested but nothing more whereas here we now know that there is the mummy and also the scorpion king and that kind of implies this much richer world full of other stuff which winds up being true if you've seen the scorpion king prequels or the mummy 3 but don't make bad choices
0: i can recommend the first scorpion king movie as a fun schlocky b movie but nothing more than that and i have not seen any of its sequels or prequels. Do not watch The Mummy 3 Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. It is bad.
1: Mm-hmm. But we're not here to talk about that movie. We're here to talk about Long Returns. A lot of things happen in the narrative. A lot of like characters moving around to different places. And at one point, someone says, Ardis, what are you doing here? Perhaps explanations are best kept for later. And we never go back to that. Which I think is a, a really good way for the movie to be like, don't worry about it. It's fine. Yeah, this movie
0: knows exactly what it is about. It is not here to have a airtight plot. It is not here to be mythologically accurate. It is just here for big, dumb action hero set pieces.
1: Like, I don't there they outside a museum trying to stop a dark ritual and it doesn't work out for them, so they have to run away. And outside, Jonathan and Alex have broken the car, so they had to steal a bus. So we have this really fun fight scene on a double-decker bus with mummies and stuff. And it's really fun. They do a lot of stuff with the geography of the bus, the geography of London. It looks really good. A lot of it looks practical or practically aided by CGI as opposed to, like, a just CGI fest, And it works out really well. Not all that much happens in this thing. It doesn't need to be there, per se. But it's still fun. I still had a good time with it. And it's, you know, a
0: fun fight scene. Yeah, if you look at some of the critical reviews when this film came out, a lot of people were very upset with the very junk food nature of a lot of the action sequences that were kind of just there for indulgence sake. But they're so fun and they never drag. There's always something interesting going on with them.
1: It reminds me a lot of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies that would come out not much longer after this. In that, sure, some of the action scenes go on longer than they strictly need to, and they're kind of just there to be like, hey, what can we do with this premise and this curse? But, you know, I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. The bus ride scene is also capped off by Ardeth Bay going, This was my first bus ride. Well, I should be more specific. That scene ends with the Bay, same as my first bus ride, but the sequence ends with Alex being kidnapped and Evie and Rick reacting to that. And the genuine fear and remorse and anger in their eyes makes me really believe in them as parents. I 100% believe those characters. And a lot of it comes from the facial expressions and the body language.
0: Speaking of couples and romance... One really interesting thing that this film absolutely did not need to do to be successful and is kind of playing against type for it anyway is the tragic romance between Imhotep and Anaxanamon. Ah! <laughs> they include it and it acts as this finality to Imhotep's character arc. We see his history in the previous film of these lovers who can't be together because a king is in the way. They betray him, and that's how Inhotep ends up where he is. Most of the first movie is him attempting to resurrect Moon using Eevee. And then here, we start the film off with Moon already being reincarnated, actually played by the same actress who played her in flashbacks in the previous film. And we see the rekindling of their relationship and as the film goes on, we see how it pales in comparison to that of Rick and
1: Eevee. Mm-hmm. But also, you still believe their romance up to a certain point. They have chemistry. They're kind of on the same level of this whole, like, our love spans time thing.
0: Really, the only instance where they falter is where Moon is not willing to risk her life to save Imhotep.
1: Anaxanamun!
0: Imhotep isn't angry when it happens. He's sad and distraught, and he decides to end it all. It's like, I have no reason to be here anymore. Like, my life is over, and he just ends it.
1: It's a really heartfelt moment. It's the end of the climax scene, and it's a really affecting scene. Even just at the very end of this, these characters' plots, it really deepens how much you feel about them and i think it's a really important thing for our antagonists
0: it doesn't redeem imhotep in any way but it does humanize him and that's important especially when you're dealing with someone who we consider a monster like this is a mummy this is a supernatural being he has to consume the flesh of the living in order to restore himself he has all of these weird mystical powers
1: But I think that's one of the appeals of the mummy, and also vampires, is that they are monsters who still have, to a greater or lesser extent, all of their human emotions, and that complicates our understanding of what humanity is and what monstrousness is. Exactly. That's
0: what the heart of monster movies are all about, is exploring that dichotomy, or lack thereof, between monsters and humans. And we saw that very effectively with uh, the Shape of Water last week. And this is kind of just a continuation of that.
1: We've been praising the cast, speaking of which uh, Arnold Buslew and Patricia Velasquez for, for Imhotep and Anaxim But I will throw it out there. A lot of the cast is very white, playing characters who would definitely have been black at this point in Egyptian history. You kind of hand wave that in the first movie because we didn't really know when exactly in Egypt's history this was taking place. I don't think. I could be wrong.
0: Well, Imhotep is an actual Egyptian architect, so we did know.
1: I assume it was just like the same name, not the same person, because, you know, Fair it, enough. Was, it was a high priest. And there was a point in time when a rulership was mostly people from Greece. So you could hand me with it here, but not, not in this one. Especially in the scene where Evie as Nefertiti in the past is surrounded by all of these other white actors. And I realized that while it doesn't look like historical Egypt, it does look like movies about Egypt from the 1930s, which I think is a really interesting choice. Maybe not one that holds up in terms of diverse casting, but I understand why they went with that for the homage since these movies are set in the 30s. And admittedly, if they had cast a lot of black actors for their egyptian characters that would mean a lot of white protagonists and black antagonists which which would would be its own kind of not great so what i'm saying is all black remake of the mummy series i'm down yeah going
0: off of that last point there are a number of mooks in this film just extras the force behind imhotep and the cult is rather large and they are very often fodder for rick and our death, or for some of the supernatural dangers that they face along the journey. And many of them are people of color, so it's, again, not interacting great with representation and kind of viewing these people as disposable. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we do have the army of the Magi, who are also mostly... People of color and who are heroic. And while we do see some of them fall in battle, many of them are still standing after the first wave of the army of Anubis.
1: Mm-hmm. While a narrative set mostly in Africa and the Middle East, a lot of the extras will logically be from that area. It still winds up having this disposable people of color thing that is not
0: great. Yeah, that combined with the very white savior trope of Rick having this sacred tattoo. And- that mark
1: means you're a protector of man, a warrior for God, a Magi.
0: He's the one who has to defeat the Scorpion King. Yeah. It doesn't completely redeem it, but it does push a little against it with how reluctant Rick is to assume that role. I'm just trying to get my kid back, and if I have to save the world to do it, so be it.
1: Mm -hmm. While Rick has ethics, none of them are particularly derived from any religious standpoint. I think the most religious perspective we get from any of our protagonists is at one point Jonathan is saying, She's gone to a better place. You know, like it says in the good book. And I cannot believe that Jonathan has ever set foot in a church. And he needs to go to confession. (laughs) Let's talk about Interview with a Vampire. With the vampire. Oh, with the vampire. Yeah. I've always thought of it as Interview with a Vampire. So, it's the 90s. And late one night, reporter Daniel Molloy interviews Louis de la Pointe du Lac. Louis de Pointe du... Dupont. Interviews a guy named Louis, (laughs) a vampire. 200 years ago, he was a wealthy plantation owner... Despondent after the death of his wife and child, his thrill-seeking attracts the vampire Lestat, who turns him. Both soon regret it. Lestat revels in the hunt, but Louis refuses to kill. To entice Louis to stay with him, Lestat saves a little girl, Claudia, from the plague. They play it being a family, but Claudia can't grow up even as she grows older. Her anger at her unchanging immortal state helps pull Louis away from Lestat. Eventually, her attempt to kill Lestat fails, leaving his beautiful face decrepit and Louis sets him on fire. His fate is left unknown as they flee for Europe. They go looking for other vampires, and eventually meet Armand and his vampire theater troupe. Louis is drawn in by Armand's promise of answers to all his essential questions, but Claudia is afraid of losing him. But then, when the vampire theater troupe learns that they broke the highest law, vamp may not kill vamp. They send Louis, Claudia, and Claudia's new mother, Madeleine, to death. Armand saves Louis, who kills every other single vampire in Paris and rejects Armand because he didn't save Claudia before heading back to the New World. A century passes. Eventually, Louis winds up in New Orleans and runs into Lestat, still decrepit, but is no longer tempted by him. As he conducts his interview, Daniel begs Louis to turn him, and Louis is frustrated that Daniel hasn't learned anything. Daniel flees, flustered, only for Lestat to swoop down upon him and offer him the choice to become a vampire as the film ends on a cliffhanger. Where do you want to start with this? Because there's a lot of different entry points here.
0: I'd actually like to start at the very beginning of the film. So we open on modern-day San Francisco, and there's this eerie choral music. And the juxtaposition of those two is incredibly jarring. Mm -hmm. But because it's so jarring, it does a really good job of setting the tone of the film.
1: Mm -hmm. Eerie, off-kilter, things out of joint.
0: These two time periods don't match up well, and that's kind of what the whole film's about.
1: Right. We also open with the title card Screenplay by Anne Rice. And
0: you can definitely tell that this is based off of Anne Rice's work. They include a lot of her prose in this, which, I mean, of course, it's, you know, one of her seminal works, and it's very beloved by a certain group of people. But there are times where it sounds like a trashy romance novel. I love you still. That's the torment of it. who will care for me, my love? My dark angel, when you are
1: gone. Listen, if you look into how the other books go, it, it's not not a trashy romance novel. The Vampire Chronicles, uh, this is a part of, oscillate between like epic high fantasy and erotica. And I don't want to poo-poo erotica or anything like that. It's, it's a perfectly valid genre. But sometimes the juxtaposition gets kind of silly. Um, mm-hmm. when, when I'm dealing with like the devil doing a Dante's Inferno on the stats, and then he has to go find some aliens to help him fight a fallen angel and stuff. It, the stories get kind of
0: goofy. I mean, most series, as they go longer, and especially if they're not plotted out beforehand, tend to get kind of goofy.
1: Yeah. I have mixed feelings on Anne Rice. On the one hand, she did write a lot of queer men into literature fairly early on, but on the other hand, she's very adamantly opposed to fanfiction writing, which had a detrimental effect on fanfiction writers for a long time. Oh, yes. So, yeah. Yeah. A thing that I want to point out, because you mentioned this is, has a certain like erotic tone. Lestat is here played by Tom Cruise. A potential choice for Lestat was going to be Cher.
0: Interesting.
1: Anne Rice was worried that Hollywood wouldn't adapt the film if it was so homoerotic, so she re- rewrote Lestat as a woman. And then the studio undid that. <laughs> I don't think they unwomaned Lestat as much as you, you might expect, because, wow, this is a very gay movie. Yes, <laughs> but I think that works for it. Oh yeah, naturally. This is very subtextually a gay romance narrative. At a certain point, it's it's not really
0: even subtext. It's just text. Yeah. They adopt a child together.
1: And there's a lot of very attractive men who have inherent seductiveness for Brad Pitt. Although, it's not gay of Antonio Banderas. That's just a freebie. You feel too much. So much you make me feel.
0: Speaking of the seduction and whatnot, I really enjoy the threading of the needle that this film does between viewing the feeding of vampires as eating and viewing it as this sexual encounter. It splits that difference really well. It leads to some very uncomfortable comparisons about how vampires operate. And there are parts where the film throws off the veneer of snobbery and aristocracy that are associated with a lot of these vampires reveals the inherent savage nature of them, that they need to consume the lifeblood of others in order to survive, and they are not beyond torturing and playing with their food.
1: Mm-hmm. And the sort of the god complex that they all seem to inevitably wind up with because they're immortal and have to feed on other people, and there's not a good way to do that without thinking of yourself as better than the cattle Mm -hmm.
0: it's also one of the reasons that this film works so well is because we have louis who is working against that for
1: most of the film not always i understand what you mean by it working because that is definitely a big part of the narrative struggle but also Louis was already feeding off of people long before he was a vampire. He owned slaves. That's very, very true. He spent a long time being like, ah, I will go to hell for being a vampire. I am damned for being a vampire. And not, ah, I will be damned for owning slaves. Yep. It's not commented on. And we talked about how it would be interesting to see the comparison of the nature of a vampire to the nature of a slave owner done by someone who should handle that. Not us. Someone else. Mm-hmm. could do a really good job with that. I'm not saying this is the right place for it, but they super don't mention it because they, yeah. really they don't want Louis to be a bad guy. Yeah.
0: And unfortunately, the nature of the discourse when the book was originally written in the mid-70s is just, we weren't quite examining how we portrayed slave
1: owners wide enough as we probably should have. Mm-hmm. Or at least white authors weren't. Yes. But also, a lot of people wanted this movie to be gone with the wind. Oh boy, yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of... People who talked about it in these kind of gaudy, epic, high romance, long narrative things. Anne Rice was upset because Tom Cruise was no Red Butler. So the analysis of Louis' role in slave ownership was not going to happen from anybody making this movie. (laughs) Yeah. That's not the only reason I have a hard time taking Louis seriously, but also, like, I'm often sort of bored with his I shall not kill, I am a monster thing because it isn't fun to watch And with that Tom Cruise as Lestat is having a good time. I'm not saying that an actor who's having fun makes their character morally valid, but I am saying that it makes that character more enjoyable and more sympathetic in the moment, if only because at least he's happy. There's also another big problem with setting Louis as this
0: aside from all other vampires and how he operates ethically and morally. At one point in the film, Claudia is surprised that Louis at one point fed on rats. Rats? When did you eat rats, Louis? And this is after some 30 years that Lissat, Louis, and Claudia have all been together as a family. So we have no idea how Louis is feeding for those 30-some years. I mean, we see some montage of Lestat and Claudia devouring people, clearing out entire homes. Like, you have half a dozen coffins coming out of these plantation homes. Good visual. (laughs) Yeah. But it undercuts Louis if he is not living up to those ethics and morals that he set out to begin with.
1: Right, and I mean, like, I'm all for a narrative about someone who goes on and off the wagon with the thing that they're moral about. That is a valid way to write a moral arc for a thing.
0: Yeah, but it just ignores the question of him falling off the wagon or not.
1: Right, like that's the like main arc for the first act. But then Claudia shows up and we just don't see that. And we don't see like there should have been a very impactful scene of him giving into the whole I eat people now thing. That there should no, have been a thing. Yeah, there's no resolution there. Mm-hmm. By the
0: time we get to the present day, as it were, he, at the beginning, says that he was intending to eat the interviewer, Daniel.
1: Mm -hmm. What were you going to do?
0: Kill me? Drink my blood? All that stuff? Yes. So, obviously he's abandoned all that. Yeah. But how that came about and what his internal state uh, was as he was doing so is not revealed to us.
1: Mm -hmm. And admittedly, I don't mind focusing on Kirsten Dunst as Claudia, who is doing a really good job. Like, I think this is her first role or first big role, yes?
0: It's very early on for her,
1: yes. Yeah. And she carries the whole second act. Her going through this thing where she has aged mentally but not physically is cool and weird and scary and the kind of thing you can really only do in a vampire narrative. And I'm into it.
0: Interview with the Vampire was definitely Kirsten Dunce's like, big breakout role. She had a few minor roles before that, but this was big and she... She blows it out of the water. She's doing great here for an actress. I think she's like 12 at the time.
1: Mm -hmm. Give or take, yeah.
0: Yeah. Then she goes on next year to be one of the main characters in Jumanji.
1: Wow, that was Kirsten Dunst, wasn't it? Yep. Huh. There's a really fun scene that kind of drives home how unchanging she is, where she tries to cut her hair to look a little bit more adult, but it all just grows back in a moment. These vampires have unusual rules, but I'm here for them.
0: It's definitely interesting, like, whenever you're watching a vampire movie and figuring out, okay, what rules are all of these vampires operating by? Because we see their reflections in mirrors, we see them able to cross running water.
1: They're okay with crosses. Yeah. Actually, I'm quite fond of looking at crucifixes. They can't do sunlight at all. Mm. They don't seem to actually eat or drink anything but blood.
0: Although, uh, at one point, Louis is able to shed a tear and it is not blood.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And also, some of them can read minds, some of them can fly. They're on that Twilight thing where all the vampires have different superpowers. Mm.
0: Although one thing that's really weird, when Louis first changed, he's like looking around and then there's this statue that like opens its eyes and like blinks at him and they don't do anything with it. It's just kind of there. And I get that it's supposed to be like, oh, he's viewing this world in a completely different way now and seeing things that he never could have seen as a human but it's still just so bizarre and out of place
1: yeah i kind of think he's just tripping balls
0: (laughs) while we're talking about the vampires i will say i really appreciate the pretty subtle makeup for a lot of them it gets the point across without being too dramatic i will say for the most part i think the blood is a little too watery i want it to be thicker but I get that a lot of the effects that they needed to do would have been more difficult if that were the case.
1: Yeah, but also this is a big budget movie, and it's 94. We, we can do Blood now. We have the entire slasher genre of the 80s to figure out how to do Blood right.
0: Yeah, I mean, we had it figured out in Psycho. Chocolate syrup, perfect. I mean, it does require you to change around the formula if you're not shooting in black and white, but...
1: Mm. Speaking of money, it's never really addressed where all these characters get money from to live these kind of rich, decadent vampire lives. I guess they could probably steal some of it, but they seem to continue to act like landed aristocracy for 200 years, despite burning every land that they take possession of. Perfect! Just burn the place! Burn everything we own!
0: Well, Louis burns down his plantation, but then he goes to live in New Orleans with Lestat, and I guess he has some home there, or they acquire one with Claudia, and most of their hunting is done in the upper classes, so it would be relatively easy to acquire some wealth that way. Yeah. And the vampires in Seduction, A, they might even just be able to get some of their victims to quote-unquote willingly sign away some of their possessions to them.
1: I could see that. Or, like, will it away, and then yeah. you know, just come back 20 years later, so it's not obvious what happened. Yeah.
0: Earlier, you mentioned about how much fun Tom Cruise was having as Lestat and just being this evil son of a bitch. I will say some of his manicness, I am reminded of the Oprah interview. Yeah, I can see that. And it was a little weird with that context here.
1: Sure. And I'm praising Lestat as a character to watch, he is very evil and sinister in complicated ways like him as a abusive boyfriend character is genuinely upsetting in a way that i think is very effective for the film handles very well
0: yeah for the most part the way that the film handles the abuse dynamics is
1: relatively good about as well as it can be done while also being a vampire tragedy epic and also you know not being technically explicit about it being a romantic relationship yeah not that relationships have to be romantic to be abusive but However, there is this
0: one thing that I really need to ding the film for. We're dealing with a vampire narrative. There's lots of violence. There's a lot of violence that happens to people in various states of undress. And very often, women in states of undress in this film are then immediately followed by violence happening to said women. And it is incredibly consistent. And it's... Really, really unfortunate because they could have easily swapped in some men for those scenes and it would have been fine.
1: Mm -hmm. It's pretty clear that when they don't have high sided targets, the vampires tend to feed on people who are underprivileged, so slaves and sex workers, which is not great. It is realistic. I can totally see that being a thing. That could be a good metaphor for how things work, but it's never really addressed. It means there's a lot of violence against slaves and sex workers that isn't given the weight it deserves.
0: And especially when earlier in the film, when Lestat is talking to Louis about like his first kill and getting that all sorted, they specifically seek out targets that have committed evil acts. They're seeking out two people who conspired murder on someone. She had that gorgeous young fop Murder her
1: husband. She blamed a slave for his murder. Imagine what they did to him. Evil tours are easier. And they taste better.
0: And then all of the other victims seem incredibly innocent. So it kind of just blows that whole facade out of the water.
1: We're talking about the vampires looking at them as abusive boyfriends and the way capitalism is to underprivileged people. But there's another entire lens to look at Lestat in this narrative. Louis is wallowing in his grief at the death of his family. And then Lestat comes along and allows him to live in this place of wallowing forever. And I think the underlying message of the film is don't let yourself wallow. Don't let yourself give into the indulgence of grief. And don't carry that onto other people. That's not healthy. That's not a good choice. You should grow and move on. And that's better. And that's how you be a better person. The arc that we see for Louis is not being as sad anymore not having all this grief and self-loathing and when he rejects Lestat he's rejecting this grief and trauma that he was wrestling with which I think is a really valid arc and I think that's a really good way to do that cuz I'm a fan of using monsters as a metaphor for broader underlying things that would work better if Lestat was ever able to die yeah well i mean he is
0: pointy stick bright light y- yeah but they try to get rid of him a number of times in the film and he keeps coming back
1: Yeah, but in the same way, sometimes grief doesn't actually stop being a thing. You can leave it somewhere and only revisit it when you want to, as opposed to it following you around all the time.
0: That honestly is a good segue into my next point and the problems I have with the ending of the film. Oh boy! So I had seen this film once before, but it was at a party with a lot of people. So I've only seen bits and pieces and I didn't quite remember it fondly, but I kind of chalked that up to just like missing important plot points and not paying attention. And then I saw the ending and I remembered why I did not like this movie. And the ending just seems to come out of nowhere. So Louis finishes his story. Daniel is enthralled with him and wants to be turned into a vampire and Louis's like did you not pay attention at all? and scares him off and he runs away and he's driving away he puts the audio cassette in his car stereo to listen to and then Lestat pops into in the back seat just shows up and he utters the same line that he said to Louis: is like don't be afraid I'm going to give you the choice I never had Feels so weird because last we saw Lestat, he was hunkered down in this abandoned cemetery in Louisiana, New Orleans, but the interview is happening in San Francisco, and when Lestat shows up, he's still dirty and raggedy and wearing his, like, plantation garb when he jumps this dude in his convertible. It doesn't make any sense how Lestat could get halfway across the country
1: still in that garb, and it's so dumb. In the book, Daniel is actively seeking out Lestat, which makes way more sense, and it removes all the logistic problems.
0: It makes way more sense, and I have no idea why they decided to change it.
1: I guess it's maybe a little more snappy, and it gives Lestat a little bit more rapscallious agency at the end of the film, but it raises a lot of logistical questions. My guess is
0: that they were setting it up for a little sequel, considering how big of a character Lestat is throughout the rest of The Vampire Chronicles.
1: Yeah, you can make an argument that he's sort of the main character
0: overall. But unfortunately, the ending just does not work for what the film is trying to accomplish with most of its themes.
1: Mm -hmm. Especially since, sure, Daniel's getting a choice, but his choice is be turned into a vampire, or probably be eaten. There's not a good outcome here. You would think the point of the film is that choosing to not be involved in this at all and live out in the daylight is the good option, but that's not going to be a thing. Mm -hmm. One last thing. The film is dedicated to River Phoenix, who was going to play Daniel Malloy before he tragically died, like a few weeks before filming due to start, which sucks. But apparently Christian Slater donated basically everything he made from the movie to the, the charities that River Phoenix was a fan of, which I'm here for. Good on him. Solid.
0: I think I'm ready to move into movie monster magic. We do have some interesting effects going on while Louis is assaulting the crypt below the vampire theater with like the fire and like the decapitations and whatnot. That's kind of fun. But when you compare that to all of the ridiculous action sequences we get in The Mummy Returns and all of the effects going on, it's really a pretty one-sided contest.
1: There are some wire work in Interview with a Vampire that hasn't maybe aged all that well. Mm -hmm.
0: However, while there are a lot more effects in The Moon Returns, not all of them hold up. The Mouth of Water is okay, it's a little shaky, it's a little rough, but I think we'd be remiss if we didn't specifically call out the monstrosity (laughs) that is Dwayne the Rock Johnson as the scorpion
1: centaur thing. The scorpion bit doesn't look terrible. It's not amazing, but is also a giant scorpion, so it's basically just a very shiny carapace. It's not hard to render that kind of thing. Yeah. And the you know design is pretty cool. We've got yeah. two giant scorpion claws and a scorpion yeah. tail.
0: We actually have four scorpion claws. So we have two claws on the scorpion body part. They're like the big kind of crusher claws. And then the humanoid upper half, instead of having hands, also has like smaller, more maneuverable claws.
1: He has a very hard time hugging.
0: You could also say that he has a lot more opportunities to hug various individuals because he has more things that can, like, wrap around people.
1: That's that's true. That's true. But unfortunately, the face. The
0: face and the skin are just not good. (laughs) And, And it's a pity because this is, like, the big climax monster. Yeah. And I'm not sure how much of it was just over budget, not enough time, and how much of it was the limitations of technology. Right. And it's really unfortunate because a lot of the similar effects
1: that are used on
0: Imhotep when he is still regenerating are incredibly solid.
1: Yeah, he is a good blend of still living flesh, but also that flesh has been like mummified and decayed. We don't see it here, but there's a great shot in the first one where a beetle runs up through his neck, out his cheek, and then he eats it. And it's so gross. I love it. And those things work really well. And we have a lot of other like small good bits. The way the magic looks is often pretty cool looking. It's often very ethereal. We have some cool stuff where past and present start to get a bit wibbly. The way they fade into and out of each other is really pretty to look at.
0: Mm -hmm. Even while the Mummy Returns has lower lows, it also has higher highs and is, in general, more visually impressive.
1: Mm -hmm. And the army of Anubis looks pretty good. They're not amazing, but they still look pretty good for 2001 crowd CGI. This is around the same time the technology was being created, like mostly for Fellowship of the Ring and that kind of thing. So I think The Mummy Returns wins. I'm not sure how the point value system is is being done for monster movie magic. I feel like somehow the numbers don't add up, but I'm okay with Mummy Returns winning for just some truly magical effects.
0: It, it's very subjective what we're doing here, and I'm fine leaving it as being subjective, but I would also tend to agree that The Mummy Returns probably in general has better monster movie magic. But that
1: does bring us to our final vote. And it's a little hard. I think both of them have flaws. Both of them have things I really like. I'm going to say The Mummy Returns has characters I love more. That
0: ending really frustrates me from Interview with the Vampire, and I just have more fun with The Mummy Returns. Yeah. It's very schlocky and B movie, but that's also the energy that the original Universal Monster movies brought to the table.
1: Mm-hmm. I think Interview with a Vampire is maybe a better film, but I think The Mummy Returns is more of a good movie than Interview with a Vampire is a better film, if that makes sense. Mm hmm.
0: And it's not like the film aspects of The Mummy Returns are left by the wayside. We have some really great character building moments. This film is really good at show, don't
1: tell. That emotep thing where the look in his eyes when he realizes that Anoxinamon An doesn't really love him all that much. It works. It's so good.
0: Mm-hmm. So with that, The Mummy Returns will be resurrected once again. And Interview with the Vampire will turn to dust. No!
1: Oh. We'll talk about that next time. Mm-hmm. Well, not next time, next time. Next time, we're going to talk about The Sixth Sense and Wolf. If you wanted to catch that episode as soon as it was live, make sure to follow us on
0: Facebook, Twitter, Podbean, and Spotify. But until then, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.